You may have noticed that uh, we're out of sync in terms of uh, the letters to the churches, uh, and we, we, we're jumping to the last one. Uh, that's because at Onorahi and at Tikipanga today, they have a gospel and healing service, and we were going to fit in Anosa's, uh, one of Anosa's sermon series uh, with you guys. So it's kind of, we're jumping to the last one in the series on the uh, uh, churches uh, in Asia Minor, but uh, that's okay. <laughs> Lord, I just pray you'd be with us as we look at the church at Laodicea and what the Spirit is saying to the church. Help us to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. And of course, it's great to be able to preach on the, the letter to the church at Laodicea because it's the easiest and it's also the hardest of the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation to preach on. It's easiest because it's the most concrete in local color. We have such a great depth of information about the city that opens up and brings alive what Christ has to say to the church right down to knowing about Laodicea's plumbing problems. For what we, um, for uh, today, it, 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 what may seem flowery imagery and metaphor to the church at Laodicea had concrete, real-world sort of understanding. And I think that's ha ha helpful when we come to look at the book of Revelation to realize to its original hearers, a lot of what we sort of go, ooh, you know, that's a bit scary. They might have had some understanding because of the world in which they lived. But it's also the hardest because it really packs a punch. The church at Laodicea is the only one that Jesus does not have a com commendation for. And you know what he has to say to the church at Laodicea? really hits home. Not only does it specifically speak to a church in a city in Asia Minor at the end of the first century, it sadly resonates very easily with the Christian church in the West at the beginning of the 21st century. Even with the unease and difficulties that we're having with COVID at the moment, uh, we, like them, have become complacent and think we're self-sufficient in our affluent society. Have we, like them, then and there, become lukewarm and half-hearted in our faith? You know, we seem to have everything we need. And just maybe, like them, we've left Christ on the outer. What is the Spirit saying to the church? What is the Spirit saying to us? Well, Laodicea is the last stop on our journey through the seven letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor. It's a journey uh, that if uh, you, know, you could follow the mailman along the main road through the province, uh, and uh, they've weaved also through Jesus speaking to a whole kaleidoscope of churches, wrestling with different issues. As John Stott summarizes, the Ephesians were urged to return to their first fresh love for Christ. The Christians at Smyrna are encouraged to remain true even in the face of suffering. Spoiler alert, Pergamum is told to champion truth in the face of evil. Uh, Thyatria is to follow righteousness in the face of evil. In Sardis, there is a call for inward reality behind an outward show. 
the church without much strength at Philadelphia is offered open doors for evangelism and service and called to boldly step through them. And in the letter to Laodicea, complacency is challenged with a powerful appeal for wholeheartedness. A call I need to hear. A call I believe that we all need to hear. Well, Laodicea was the chief of three cities in the Lycos River Valley. The other two cities were Hierapolis and Colossae, which the letter to the church at Colossae that Paul wrote is written to. And it was famous for three things. Firstly, it was famous for its wealth. It was the Switzerland of the ancient Near East. It was the banking capital. It was also the center of a very lucrative garment trade, famous for cloth made from very soft black wool. And it was a center for healing, known for a very effective eye ointment made from minerals found in the area. Now, it was so wealthy that several members of a prominent family were considered royalty in Roman society. They could buy royalty. Uh, they earned the title king. It was so wealthy that when the city was destroyed by an earthquake in 60 AD, they turned down imperial aid to rebuild the city. No, thank you. We can do it ourselves. You know, it'd be like Christchurch turning down government aid to rebuild. No, it's all right. We've got the money in the bank. The city and the church took pride in the physical resources they had at their disposal. The other thing the city was famous for was its water, or rather, its water problems. Maybe they would have benefited from a three waters strategy. <laughs> you see, 11 kilometers, maybe they wouldn't, <laughs> 11 kilometers in one direction were the hot springs at Hierapolis. They were these tall uh, pools and waterfall of boiling water. That's a picture of it there. Very much like the lost pink and white terraces in Rotorua. Two places in the world where these, uh, these formations are found. Water that was known for its healing and recuperative properties. And seven kilometers in the other direction was Colossae, which was known for its coal mountain spring water. Beautiful, clear, and refreshing. But Laodicea had no natural water source. So it brought water in by an elaborate aqueduct and pipe system. And by the time the water got to the city, it was, had either become too cool to provide good bathing or had heated up too much to be good drinking water. And we know from archaeological evidence as well that the pipes often solidified because of the amount of lime and other minerals in the water. And the people in Laodicea were always complaining about their water. It was like they had a public drinking fountain on a, and it was like a, a public drinking fountain on a hot summer's day. And you take one sip and you have to spit it out because it's tepid and undrinkable. And Jesus uses this image to tell the church how he feels about the condition they had allowed themselves to get into. Like the drinking water, they were neither hot nor cold. And because they were tepid and lukewarm, Christ would spit them out. They were vomit-inducing. 
Now, people have often seen neither hot nor cold to mean that Jesus would prefer that they were either wholehearted and passionate and on fire or that they'd be totally against him. But the people at Laodicea would have known that if the water was cold, it would be refreshing and wonderful to drink. You know, there's nothing like an ice-cold drink at the end of a hot day's work, right? Um, Or it would have been hot and full of healing properties, like a soak in a hot bath when you've been working all day. But the church was neither of these. And so Jesus says, I will spit you out. Not that he preferred that they were cold against him, but it was just that they weren't refreshing and, you know, and, and vivacious and full of life or hot and full of that wonderful healing properties. And Jesus introduces himself to this church as the Amen, the true and faithful witness, because he sees things as they really are and he speaks the truth about them. In the Gospels, Jesus would start many of his sayings with the phrase, truly, truly, signifying that he's about to say is both important and true. And he's speaking to a church here that is deluded about their true condition. It's very much like that you've heard it say, but I say formula in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus contrasts the church's understanding of their condition with his own. They say they are rich and wealthy and do not need anything, just like their city had said to the emperor. But Jesus sees their true condition, that they are wretched, pitiful and poor, blind and naked. They may think they are wealthy. There's money in the bank. But when it comes to storing up treasures in heaven, the vault was empty. And all the women might look good in their fashionable little black dresses and all the men might take pride in their black jersey. Boy, doesn't that ring home. But in spiritual terms, they don't have a stitch to wear. Nakedness speaks of shame. Their true condition is plain for Christ to see. They may be able to heal certain eye problems with ointment, but just as in John's Gospel where Jesus compares the Pharisees to the man born blind, they need their spiritual eyes opened. And I wonder in in the West if it's not the same. You know, we have such a high standard of living that we can easily think we're okay. We actually have a comfortable life. We have uh, the resources within ourselves. One of the ways people talk about God is that God is there for the cracks. You know, the gaps. And with science and understanding and human knowledge and our physical resources, the gaps seem to be getting smaller. Or maybe we've covered over the cracks, perhaps. And, uh, well, we don't actually need God in our intellectual framework or, you know, in our very comfortable lives. We feel we can heal the human condition both physically and on a deep psychological level through our medicine and our understanding. You know, and even there we may seem to have stepped aside from needing the great physician. We have great traditions and rituals and artifacts and buildings that help us keep us sustained Maybe we can forget the spiritual reality behind those things. Our zeal and our passion can fall away and we become lukewarm. And in response to that, Christ's call is for the church to come to him, to remind them that in their world of choice and plenty, that only Christ is the source of eternal life, that only Christ is the one who can forgive our sins and put us right with God, that only Christ is the source of things that satisfy spiritually, that only Christ is the 
the source of things that last eternally. And he calls them to come to him and buy gold refined in the fire, white clothes that will cover their shame and salves for their eyes that will make them able to see properly. Now, it's a bit hard to think for us to think of buying gold from Christ. You know, what do we have to give him? But Jesus tells the parable that the kingdom of God is like a hidden treasure buried in a field or the pearl of great price that a person will willingly give up all they possess and own to possess it. All they have. That they will be all in. They will not be half-hearted. At the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, the way to receive the kingdom of God, the first step to being all in, was to know that you were spiritually poor that you realize you need Christ. But the cost is to be all in for Christ. And Christ offers us white garments that we can be clothed in his righteousness, that he is faithful and just and forgives us our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Likewise, our eyes can be closed to the spiritual reality around us and we need to turn to Christ again to open our eyes and allow us to see only in knowing and following and fixing our eyes on Christ that we can live the, for the kingdom, that we can run the race that's set before us, that we will find fullness of life, not a comfortable life, but full eternal life. And we often think of such hard words as Jesus says to Laodicea as ones that uh, uh, come from an angry, wrathful God. But Jesus continues his invitation to the church at Laodicea by letting him know that those he loves, he rebukes and disciplines. The writer at Hebrew quotes Proverbs to encourage us in times of difficulty by affirming that God as a father disciplines his children because he loves us. Christ's invitation to come to him comes out of his great love for the church, his great love for us, his great sacrificial love on the cross, laying down his life for us. The hand that disciplines is the nail-pierced hand. And the way to change their heart condition was to turn and earnestly seek Christ again, to know their spiritual condition and acknowledge their need for him. Now, cities in the ancient Near East were seen as being places of safety. It's kind of changed, hasn't it? In, in those days, they were seen as safety. If you were outside the city at night, you were in danger from outlaws and wild beasts and everything else. And they were, they were part of what made them safe places is that they were walled with large gates. And at sunset, the gates to the city were closed and they would not be opened again till the next day. The Ephesus Gate at Laodicea uh, is only just visible above the ground. That's it there. That's the Ephesus gate. But if you were on the road to Laodicea and you were running late, you got caught in rush hour traffic or somebody's donkey threw a, threw a um, you know, something or somebody's cart broke down in front of you um, and you were late getting to the city, the uh, gate would be closed. And you would have to bang on the city gate, hoping that someone would hear you and come 
and open the gate and let you in. It was a regular occurrence in Laodicea. And this is the picture that Jesus uses to couch his invitation to the church at Laodicea. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with them and they with me. Now we're used to seeing this passage through the artwork of William Holman Hunt's painting, The Light of the World, and equating it with people coming to salvation. There's nothing wrong with that. But you notice the offer here is made to the people in the church. Yes, to individuals, but within the church to again be open to Christ, to allow him in. And that picture of sitting down to a meal is one of sharing table fellowship with a person, the most intimate of ways of sharing life together. Knowing Christ intimately. Repentance and the way to wholeheartedness is again to hear Jesus' voice, to focus on him, to know the reality of Christ coming and dwelling with us. The reality that we celebrate and remember in communion. That he is with us and feeds and sustains us. To know how much he loves us. To be people who don't simply have Jesus as an add-on to an already busy life, but the one who is at its center and its source. And Jesus' promise to those who are victorious, who come back to him and follow wholeheartedly, is that they will reign with him. They will share his throne. And Laodicea, remember, the height of their wealth was that some important people in the community were considered to be kings. They had earned the title in Roman society. But Jesus is offering so much more to his people. Why settle for what this world has to offer when Christ offers so much more and when he comes fully in his kingdom? The church at Laodicea had become lukewarm as it allowed itself to be assimilated into the affluent, comfortable uh, culture around it. But it was called to turn again to Christ, to open themselves up to him and be wholehearted, and they would live at, so they would live out his kingdom and rule with him when his kingdom came in its fullness. Now, I think in some places that the church has kind of got that mixed up. You know, they want to have the power and the influence and the authority now you know, they want to claim dominion and say, you know, the church victorious. Instead of walking the sacrificial and difficult and costly road of being an embassy for the kingdom of God in an alien land. That's the challenge that we face. You know, we're used to the uh, version of the Beatitudes in Matthew's gospel. We're not so familiar or happy with the Beatitudes in Luke chapter 6 where Luke places a corresponding set series of woes alongside the Beatitudes. And he starts with, Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. But the corresponding woe is woe to those who are rich, for they have had their fill now. Challenging us, where do we want to find you know, our fulfillment? Where do we want to find the things that give us life? Do we want the crown of thorns so that later we will receive the victor's crown. Boy, the letter to the church at Laodicea says that change starts, that revival starts, 
that renewal and transformation starts with individuals coming alive again and being wholehearted for Christ, to turn once again to Jesus. It starts with the anyone who hears my voice, listening to Jesus' words and putting them into action. This morning, maybe you are that anyone, and you need to hear Christ's invitation again. You've found yourself drifting or complacent at home in the comforts of this world, that you feel self-sufficient. And you know, I know that there are areas in my life where that is true, and when I was preparing this sermon, whew, boy, <laughs> yeah. Do we need to hear Jesus knocking and calling this morning? Do we need to open the door and let him come in and dine with us afresh? You know, maybe it's not the outer door. Although for people today, maybe you don't know Jesus, then, you know, maybe that is the outer door. And Jesus is saying, I want to come in and know you. Maybe it's just some doorways to areas of our life where we've basically just squeezed Jesus out. You can have this bit, Jesus. You can have the guest room. And you can have the, the front parlor where everything's in order. But Jesus is knocking on those other areas of our lives. He wants to be, us to be wholehearted for him. And you know, I don't want to labor that point because it's very easy to make Christians feel bad and guilty, and I don't want to do that. Um, I want to leave you with the promise that Jesus gives, that he is the amen, the true and faithful witness, and can be trusted to keep his promises to us, to discipline us, to be with us, to bring us through, to sit down and dine with us. He comes as we hear his voice and we open the door, he will come in and dine with us. That's his promise. And he is the amen and the faithful and true witness. So I'm going to just invite us to just invite you to be still and give ourselves a moment to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church, is saying to us this morning. And I want you to just invite you to be still. And maybe you want to just uh, have, sit there with your hands open like this as a, as, a, as a posture that says, well, actually, Jesus, I'm open to what you want to do in my life. Let's just be still for a moment. As a church, Lord, we want to hear what the Spirit is saying to us. We want to be wholehearted for Jesus, the one who gave his life for us. We want to live for you because you gave your life for us. Out of your great love for us, we want to love one another. We want to just serve you because you have loved us so much. Amen.